Welcome to the FPA podcast. I'm Dante Degori, the Chief Executive of the Financial Planning Association of Australia. In this week's episode, I'm joined by FPA Chair Marissa Broom and FPA Head of Policy, Innovation and Strategy, Ben Martian. Today, we're going to talk about the FPA policy platform, our blueprint for the profession. I hope you enjoy this podcast. Hello, everyone. Um, welcome, Marissa and Ben, to the podcast. We're going to be talking about our, the FPA's policy platform. And we've been uh, on the road uh, talking to members about Roadshow. But um, perhaps just for all our listeners, can we start off with, you know, what is the policy platform? What's the purpose of the policy p- platform and how did it come to be? And I'll start off with you, Marissa, first, I suppose, from a board perspective. What was the, what's the concept and the idea of the policy platform? Oh, thanks, Dante. Well, I guess when I joined the board, the FPA had a 10-point policy platform and we were pretty successful in a time when there was less legislative change around than we've had at the moment, um, where we could proactively set agendas with stakeholders. We had a reason to go out and talk to them. And it had been a few years since we'd achieved that and it was very important for us now after we've gone through this incredible period of change and upheaval, that we again could be proactive rather than reactive to legislative change. Again, it helps us set the conversation, set the agenda, and actually make our stakeholders aware of the really key issues that make financial planning critical to the country, uh, but also our profession to be more sustainable in the long term. And and what was the process of putting that policy platform together. And, and Ben, I'll bring you in the conversation here. What what role did you and the policy team and, of course, our members play? Thanks, Dante. So in terms of what we were looking at doing uh, from the policy team's perspective, we were thinking about what are all the big rock changes that are coming up for the profession over the next couple of years. And we thought about what kind of disruption and change that would have on the profession, how it would affect the affordability of advice we were providing to clients, how it would affect the sustainability of the profession. And so what we what we did with members was have a conversation with them about those changes, about uh, what impact that would have on their businesses, what impact that would have on their clients, and think about what if we were going to come out the other side of that in a better position than what we are now, what kind of changes would need to be included um, in terms of implementing the Royal Commission, in terms of implementing the review of the life insurance framework in terms of how FASIA would play out. And so we used uh, FPA community. We uh, had a series of webinars. We had during roadshows, we were asking questions in Congress. We were asking questions from members about what they saw as the future of the profession, what needed to change to to make advice affordable, to make the profession sustainable going forwards. Um, so it was a real collaborative effort between us as the policy team as facilitators and members giving us their ideas of of what their pain points in their advice processes were, what sort of things they, they wanted to see changed, what issues were affecting their clients and, and their businesses. And Marissa, from the board's perspective, were there particular areas in, that you wanted from this policy platform? Like what are the pain points that we wanted to address as a profession? Well, I think it's really important to recognise that it's a, a board that's of elected uh, financial planners. Uh, most of us are actually running our own practices. So we were really Uh, you know, front and centre was the pain about running a business for us. So we were sort of taking all that 
personal experience um, on top of all the member feedback. And, and to be honest with you, we were overwhelmed with feedback. I know Ben's team were incredibly busy with the amount of feedback we got. And so it was really important for us to actually look at the whole process of giving better advice, as well as looking at the concept of how we can improve the delivery of advice, but then also how to run a business, how to run a business effectively and profitably so it is sustainable in the long term. So we had all of that oversight really from firsthand experience. I think um, it goes to the heart, the point you made, I think, in terms of having a, not only affordable advice, but a sustainable profession. So we want the uh, the practice of financial planning to be a sustainable profession for people to enter and those that are in the profession at the moment. So just, um, uh, Ben, just in terms of the, the, there was 19 recommendations, I think there were sort of five key areas and, and that's those recommendations have been tagged into. If we talk about sort of regulation, I mean, I think to start with, and I'll, I'll get you both in this conversation, but regulation seems to be the bane of everyone's existence, right? And uh, in terms of the fact that, you know, there's a lot of fault or blame attributed to regulation in terms of compliance, in terms of the cost, et cetera. Now, we all, we all agree that, you know, regulation is an area that we looked at and we have some, some specific recommendations here, but do you want to talk a little bit about uh, what we were trying, what are we trying to do in the regulation space? Oh, I think I have to ask Ben about how many regulators do we have. I yeah. think every time we speak, it's eight, it's nine, it's whatever. Um, my key issue about regulation is that not that we don't need a level of regulation, mm. we need consistent regulation. Yeah. And every single regulator has a different perspective on what we, uh, how we to be regulated and what the rules are and what our code of ethics are from that regulator. And it's just really confusing. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's a good point. It's not about saying we don't want regulation. It's about having effective regulation. And so, Ben, the number of regulators, how many do we have and where are we at that's from that as a, as a particular measure? Well, as of today, we're at nine. But I guess one of the good things that, that's coming through with the creation of the single disciplinary body is that effectively two of those regulators should be removed um, and we'll see a more consolidated outcome in terms of creating a single registration process, a single uh, set of professional standards um, with this single disciplinary body. So so we've got nine at the moment. What we'll see with the single disciplinary body is, is the influence of the TPB and registrations with TPB will be removed. We're obviously seeing FASIA wound down um, and a lot of everything else will more or less be consolidated at ASIC. And the benefit of benefit of that and then the minister setting the professional standards for financial planners is we'll be in a much better position to say the primary regulator of financial advice is ASIC. The primary setter of standards for financial advice is is effectively the parliament and we can get to a position where we've got a good consolidated single set of professional standards uh, out of this out of this big change that's happening at the moment that we're working on. I mean, as a both as a practitioner and and also an AFSL holder, do you feel like we can get to the point where we actually do have a single set of standards, or at least interpretation of those standards? Well, yeah, I do think I think we're very much on the pathway of that happening. Uh, I mean, as an FPA member, I've had a set of standards that I've uh, that have been far higher than the law that I've subscribed to for a long, long time. Um, but the broader market hasn't had any standards at all. So our members are probably better positioned to actually follow this through because our standards have always been higher. But yes, it's that extra complexity of that, that different interpretation. And I do think we're on the right path now. I do think the particularly this current uh, minister is very in tune with what our needs are, both the from a legislative point of view, but also from a stakeholder point of view, ASIC have both 
critically aware that there's not going to be enough advisors out there. And so we certainly need to see more financial planners and having this sort of single approach is going to be much, much appreciated and very much going to address those issues of keeping people in the profession. Very much a critical pillar, I think, of the policy platform is the regulation. So if I move on to the second pillar, which is consumer protection, um, there's a few elements here that tackle general advice, the protection of terms, and also the wholesale sophisticated investor piece. Just a comment from you, Marissa. I mean, this is really important, I think, for us from the FPA's position in acting in the public interest here. How do you feel? I mean, what are the sort of key areas there for you that we need to really further progress? Well, first of all, general advice is not general advice. It's not advice at all. It's information. And I think that whole name, even though ASIC recently came out and said that the consumer doesn't see the difference, we know that if they are sitting in front of someone and getting information, they see it as advice. So we've really got to clean that up because... The media are only going to look at a bad financial planner. They're not actually going to care whether they're given a personal advice licence or a general advice licence. So that's really important to me. And then I also know a lot of um, my peers are using that sophisticated investor or that wholesale carve-out uh, as a way of making costs more affordable to their clients and actually being able to transact more easily. I understand that completely, but I think that can be addressed very clearly through scoping advice more effectively and that we should actually think about the fact that just because a consumer has lots of zeros in their bank account doesn't mean that they've got the financial capability and the financial literacy to deal with some of the advice pieces. And we need to actually put ourselves in the client's shoes and understand what's there. So if we can help in terms of that scoping piece, then I think we can actually have some better approaches from clients who've only got maybe small amounts of wealth creation potential all the way through to the very wealthy. And Ben, you know, obviously we have the terms financial planner protected in law as something that's already in place, but what's the, what's what do we need more to happen in respect to ensuring that it's not just something that's in writing, but is actually enforced? I was just at the Sydney Roadshow recently and the main topic of conversation that members were coming up and speaking to me about was, I've seen this person providing these types of recommendations and they're not licensed or this person spruiking this property thing or that that investment thing and how do they get away with it? How are consumers not protected? And I think a lot of it is about, yes, the protections are in place. How do we make consumers better aware of the restricted terms? How do we make the regulator more aware of some of the activities that are happening out there that are definitely financial advice but aren't being picked up and aren't being aren't being properly consumers aren't being properly protected by the um, the laws and the protections that are sitting there at the moment? So it was a great first step, um, but is it actually going far enough? That's where there's the tie-in with general advice, there's a tie-in with the sophisticated investor definition, um, and there's, there's, there's a general need to better educate consumers, better educate regulators, better embed the whole restriction so that consumers can know that if somebody is saying buy this financial investment, it's because they're a financial financial planner and they've considered their goals and objectives and financial position and and provided that recommendation in their best interest. 
And I guess I'll just carry on with mm. a, another point in this, and that we didn't really address this in a in a full way. We, did, we addressed it partially in terms of separation of product and advice in our next section, mm. but really with the review that's happening under the Law Reform Commission, the review of Chapter 7, I think that's going to be really critical but by how both this pillar and the next pillar sort themselves out because really 90% of what I do I don't need a licence for. It's mm. actually when I talk about product I need to be licensed. So that's the fundamental problem with Chapter 7. I think let's get into that. And our next pillar here is sort of the licensing regime. And in particular, I think, I know this is something you're very passionate about, Marissa, in terms of, you know, Chapter 7. And, you know, one option is just to throw it out, obviously, and, and start again. <laughs> uh, but, you know, and then that's, that could be a possibility. Uh, you know, uh, the Australian Law Reform Commission, I think, has the opportunity to really look at this and, you know, uh, wouldn't be surprised. But, of course, that we do need something there. So what are some of the key elements for you? I think you mentioned separation of product and advice. You know, again, you know, do you do you think that is something we will achieve? You know, what do you think it's a fundamental must have in order for us to progress? I think the alternative is just to continue to band-aid on bits of legislation, which is why chapter seven could go around the world three times and and still have paper left over. I really think we need to get to that. And there certainly seems to be appetite for that to happen from the leading academics in the space, you know, talking about people like Pamela Hanrahan, who have all called out and said, you know, we really need to look at Chapter 7 from a product piece, from an advice piece. It really needs to be reviewed because it was it's 20 years old. It's time yeah. to review that. But certainly the we are now a profession, emerging a profession, but a profession, and therefore we really need to be recognised for that so that the whole advice piece is captured rather than just simply linked back to product. And you talked about, I mean, you run your own licence as well and not the FPS receive a lot of publicity about our platform in respect to the licensing regime. You know, you run your own licence, you're also a practitioner. I mean, where, where do you see the advantage of the review and the licensing regime for you and your business? Like, well, what, what are sort of the pain points that you see as saying, well, this, you know, I'm here as a practitioner and this is the things I want to do. I think you sort of, you know, part of that is the product, the advice piece. Part of that also might be the disclosure and the compliance. You know, is there anything you want to see change in that side of, of the regime? I think that the moment that we've got, I, I don't have this in my business because mm. I am self-licensed and we are a very small practice. So it's much easier for me. But I think certainly people in larger licensees are seeing an overreach of the compliance space. Mm. So the law may say one thing and the AFSL holder has actually taken it to a whole other level. And that's causing an enormous amount of pain in my peers. I try and see compliance as a marketing opportunity. So, that, yes, we follow all these rules for all these reasons. I know it does cost our business a lot of money to do it that way. Um, and I just don't think that that's sustainable in the long term. I just, you know, I basically have two people that spend their entire life in my practice doing the compliance yeah. part of us holding an AFSL. Um, and, and, you know, how much better would it be if they could spend all that time actually focusing on the client experience and not the compliance experience. Hmm. Ben, I mean, one of the things that one of our key pillars is it's individual registration. So we want to, you know, and this is something that is coming out in even in, in by name in respect to the single disciplinary body in terms of registrations. You know, at the moment, the single disciplinary body legislation uh, is requiring advisors to register the single disciplinary body. Talk to us a, a bit about that in terms of what's the nuance there for us in terms of what we want out of that. And by definition, by having that system, are we actually do we actually have a single registration system in place? No, we won't have a single registration system effectively. We don't know how this registration process is going to work with the single disciplinary body yet. There was one model proposed in the draft legislation. 
there are a number of other models that have been proposed through the through the consultation and we'll just need to see where government lands in terms of how they implement it but the point being that through, as you said through the single disciplinary body system financial planners are going to have to individually register be registered with that single disciplinary body the process that was proposed by government was that the individual planner would collect all the information they would provide all that information to their licensee and then the licensee would submit that registration for them we feel that if the planner is providing all the information anyway they may as well just do the registration and that brings us better into alignment with other professions, uh, doctors individually register with the, the medical registration board, lawyers individually register with their, their court in their state, accountants individually register with the tax practitioners board to be tax agents. And so to be a proper profession, there has to be a registration process of the individual where they declare that they've met the education requirements, the experience requirements, and that they're fit and proper on a on an ongoing basis um, as that registration happens where we're probably short at the moment is the there's still some elements of the tpb sitting in the framework um, there are still some elements of the licensee being required to submit certain information to asic um, and the single disciplinary body and then we've still got the authorization process um, that still has to happen with licensees this is a journey. This will take a couple of years probably to, to work its way out. And, you know, licensees play a critical role in the provision of financial advice at the moment and provide a really important support mechanism and support tool for planners. They make sure that they're, they've got all the tools and resources, they've got all the training they need, they've got all the technology support they need, they've got audits and reviews and um, complaints and PI mechanisms in place. And these are really important consumer protections that we we think licensees are, are well-placed to be providing at the moment. But we just want to see the individual financial planner have some individual accountability to that, that disciplinary body and that regulator and have that individual registration process that they, they start to look after by themselves. And it's a good point you raised there. And I think there is a critical role and i think in a lot of the the media hype around our platform there's this assumption that you know financial services businesses aren't needed anymore licensees aren't anyone but in your mind i mean those elements of support services and tools and resources are they going to go away in a single registration system no and i think they're critical as you said i mean let's mm. you know I, I keep using the example of doctors a doctor mm. can put up a shingle by themselves they can be part of a medical center they can work in a hospital they can specialize in a particular area and that's no different to what we can do in the financial planning space. We can choose to be a single practitioner, but we might buy services from a number of different commercial bodies, whether that be an, an AFSL or whether it be, you know, um, through any other private provider. That's their call and how they do that. That's a commercial decision. What we're trying to do is separate the individual responsibility about giving the advice and being professional to the commercial services you need to deliver that advice. And one of those areas about the individual uh, is about their ability to be identified identified as financial planner. Um, and so you mentioned the, the, the doctors and uh, in terms of the choices and Ben mentioned, you know, they've got to register uh, with the medical board. They go and work for a hospital as a doctor. The hospital doesn't actually make them a doctor. So the other key area here is, and I know this is a role that you play as a, as a licensee, is that 
you actually have the obligation and responsibility to ensure that any advisors in your business are actually qualified, trained, and continue to do, and you hold the responsibility to ensure they continue their education. Do you think it's time that that's separated out and that responsibility is held to the individual and is independent of the Very much so. I really genuinely believe that. Mm -hmm. Um, That's all about taking individual responsibility for the advice you deliver to, so making sure that you're competent and capable. That's the mark of true professionalism. Again, I think, you know, uh, for us, that's that's a key element of this particular platform um, and and pillar of this of the policy platform and just finally here as well just to touch on there's a couple of areas that we continue to work on and we have in the platform is both tax and centrelink access in respect to um, for our members in dealing with the ATO so we've talked about on the roadshow about ATO portal access but of course the other one that uh, is one that continues to be a bugbear for a lot of our members is the relationship with centrelink um, and so there are two key areas in which we want to progress our status there. And I think what we're talking about here, Ben, is some sort of agent status with those two respective bodies. Is that right? The ATO portal access effectively is, is what everybody's been asking for and would be Nirvana, the ability to see our, mem- our clients' contributions to their superannuation funds, be able to help them with notifications that, that come in around their superannuation. So that one's reasonably straightforward. There have been some delays in that because the ATO didn't actually have the systems and abilities to, to allow financial planners to be added on to their clients against their tax file number as a tax agent. But those system limitations have now been implemented in such a way that, that that can now happen. So now we need to work with the tax practitioners board to try and find a solution there. Um, in terms of Centrelink, there are some members who have access to certain aspects of the Centrelink system. There's some services they can do themselves, but I think what we'd ultimately like to get to in terms of Centrelink is an ability for a financial planner to help their clients assess their Centrelink benefits that they might be able to receive and submit paperwork on their behalf and have Centrelink accept that and effectively the financial planner acts as an agent for the for the client in terms of their interaction with Centrelink. And I think that would save a lot of time, money and effort for Centrelink and would be a, a valuable benefit that our members could could start providing to their clients. Excellent. All right. Now, the last two pillars are sort of correlated, but they also have uh, their own specific outcomes as well. But technology and costs of financial advice are the last two pillars. So, in specific on technology, I think we talk a lot about technology, and you know, it's, it's talked about a lot in many of PD days and conferences. But specifically in our platform here, Ben, just explain this issue about access to data, which I think is so. Let's sort of just uh, drill down a little bit here in terms of what we mean by that and how and how that would help our members and the clients they serve. So there's this great new requirement that's going to be put on all financial services providers, telecommunication companies, power companies, and a variety of other services that that consumers use called the consumer data right. And the idea behind it was the government was going to allow consumers to better compare different services and different products that they uh, are purchasing and allow them to swap more easily. But the brilliant thing it does is allows our clients to provide us with an authorization to access their financial data and have that effectively sucked live in real time into our our systems and be maintained in an ongoing way 
within our systems. And so when you think about the data collection process, often taking two to three hours in terms of reviews, it, it takes up a lot of time in our review process. If our clients are able to say, I give you permission to access my financial data, all of that can be can be brought in in real time into our financial planning software. We won't need to to ask questions. We won't need to follow up. We'll, we'll just have that data there. And that's amazing for two reasons. Number one is it's going to save a lot of time and cost, and we're going to be um, able to rely on the information we've got because it's coming straight from our clients' bank accounts and superannuation funds and insurance providers. But secondly, it also will enable us to proactively support our clients in that if we see our client's financial position is not on track compared to to the position we set out in the financial plan because they've spent too much in a particular period or because maybe they've lost their job and they haven't told us about it or maybe they're not doing quite so well this quarter, we can actually reach out to them and have a proactive conversation with them about the fact that they're not actually on track to meet their financial plan and what can we do to, to support them. On the other hand, if things are going really well for the client, we can see that they're ahead and we can proactively reach out to them and say, look, you are going really well. Maybe it's because they've earned some more money or they've received an inheritance or the markets are going really well. And we can start to have conversations about, well, you know, that thing that we said that maybe you can't do because you had to trade off and make a decision to do something else. You can now afford to do that. And so you can have these live real-time conversations with your clients. And I think that is an amazing opportunity that comes from the consumer data, right? And so in terms of the policy platform, it's how do we make that consumer data right as open and as accessible to our members um, so they can take advantage of these amazing opportunities. You know, real-time financial planning, really, it sounds like. And also in there, we have obviously the SOAs and, uh, you know, sort of digitalizing the SOA process and making that more accessible. I think they go hand in hand in terms of the data we have financial plan and making sure that it is a document that isn't, you know, put in the bottom drawer. It's something that's living and breathing. That's absolutely right. I think there's no point having live data coming from your client if you then print it off into onto a ream of paper, because that becomes very old and stale almost as soon as you hit the print button. So uh, what we are working on there is to try and encourage effectively ASIC to give everyone comfort that they can produce electronic digital statements of advice. The statements of advice can be created much more effectively, much more efficiently in a much more engaging way for clients, similar to what we talked about in the future of the SOA report that we did about 18 months ago and try and make that a reality in terms of what regulators will accept, what licensees will allow planners to deliver and, and what are better outcomes for clients. And then on the other side of things, electronic transactions. So how can we get the product manufacturers to accept electronic authorizations, electronic signatures, digital signatures from our clients as, as a way to accept transactions, authorizations, collection of information from, from our clients directly into the products to make that whole implementation part of the advice a lot more efficient and effective and, and affordable as well. 
I'm just going to add on to that. Yes. So I think that there's incredible efficiencies that can happen within a practice and the delivery of advice. But um, for me, I see the real advantage is actually making the SOA a strategic document instead of mm -hmm. just a collection of information document. And, and it actually can be alive. And then secondly, and probably the I think the most difficult of the standards in the FASEA Code of Ethics is actually to prove informed consent. And if we've got a much smarter strategic document that's delivered that actually the client understands, you can prove on the way through, they've understand the advice before you even get to implementation stage, then we've proven that really key point of the code of ethics. So, you know, there's no doubt there's enormous efficiencies through technology, but there's also some really good client benefits out Yes, and that brings me into sort of our final pillar, which is, you know, cost, which, which basically is the, you know, number one pain point that I think everyone, all these other elements we talked about attribute to this one issue, which is the cost to run my business, the cost to serve my client, um, the, the um, you know, and real big question marks about whether, um, as we said at the start, about whether some practices, some businesses are sustainable. Mm -hmm. So what in particular can we do? I mean, technology will help obviously reduce uh, reduce inefficiencies and help drive down costs to some extent, but it's not the only thing. What else can we do here? And what have we outlined as, as some of those elements? Um, and what is one of the, so it's the ones that we want to really tackle around so costs of financial So we costs. have to do something about cost. Um, at the moment, financial planning advice is for rich people, and it shouldn't be like that. It should be for anyone who wants it regardless of their situation, they should be able to access advice, whether it be one-off or you know ongoing advice, they need to be able to access it. And at the moment, it's not available for a lot of people. So I'm actually going to turn the question back on you because your actual key focus mm. is in this area, Dante. <laughs> Well, yeah, I think uh, you know, tax adaptability of advice is one of those statements or, or policy positions that people talk about and have talked about for a long time. So it's not a secret. It's not new. And many people listening to the podcast here will have heard us talk about it before. But it's, it's a, again, a key pillar of our platform for the, the future. And, you know, along with the other aspects of what we want to change, it's an area that we think is has to be included as well tax adaptability advice. And that's a, a project that we're looking to progress more proactively in terms of trying to achieve that as well. So we hope to be able to say more about that in due course, but we're not just, we haven't just written down on a piece of paper and said, that's what we want to achieve. We have actually progressed some, um, some work in that space and we're pretty excited about the potential there. But I think, you know, as I mentioned, it all comes back to, to what Marissa said, which is really choice. And one of the things that we've talked about is ability for consumers to buy the advice you want. And um, and I think at the end of the day, it's about choice for both consumers, but it's also choice for our members to be able to put together and run the business they want, the type of business they want to run and also provide the advice and services that they want. So it's all about choice, isn't it? And Ben, we've had some wins there as well, haven't we, in this space regarding about even the fact that consumers should have the right to choose how they want to pay their advice fees and where from. That's right. So one of the Royal Commission proposals was that access to paying for advice out of superannuation should be significantly restricted um, as part of that Royal Commission implementation process. And one of the things that we argued very successfully, for example, was that my super is not a different product. It is just an investment option within superannuation. And so the government in implementing the Royal Commission recommendation which was meant to say that no advice fees should be collected through my super products. 
got tempered to be you can collect one-off advice fees through my super products. And so we've been able to advocate that consumers should be able to access and pay for advice in any way they choose as long as it meets whatever the, the laws are and the restrictions that might be otherwise in place for those types of products. So in terms of superannuation, that the advice meets the sole the advice is about superannuation and therefore it meets the sole purpose test. Therefore you can collect the fees from the superannuation products in terms of life insurance, that the life insurance framework is, is in place, but as long as you comply with that, then, then collect fees through life insurance products is, is allowed and acceptable. And then for any other type of investment that you can, you can negotiate with the client and get the client to agree how they, how they want to pay for the advice. And so yeah, we've had a, a great outcome in terms of being able to ensure that clients are able to pay for the advice they want and, and pay for it in the way that they want to be able to pay for it. Excellent. And look, there are, as I said, there are 19 recommendations across our policy platform. We definitely encourage all members to go into the member center and get a copy of the platform. We encourage you to make sure you're across it as much as you can. And the FPA will continue to update and continue to provide information to members about how we're tracking on a number of these. The current issue that we're dealing with at the moment is a single disciplinary body in respect to single registration as an example. But many of these elements are happening concurrently and some are still to be started. And, uh, you know, we progress this plan over the next five years. Just in closing, any any final comments from either of you? No, I'm glad you just said the five-year thing because this is designed to be a proactive five-year plan. I guess we didn't start with that. We probably Mm. should have started at that point. We didn't want to change, you know, we understand the regulatory burden that we're all under at the moment is enormous. We didn't want to just add to it, but we we knew that the stakeholders were going down a path of addressing some of these issues and we wanted to come out proactively and say, let's do it this way or how about this as a a suggestion. So it's a five-year proactive plan that we're hoping to follow. And Ben, any final comments from you? No, I would I would just echo those points. But I think it's important for members to understand how we as the policy team use use this this guide. So effectively, when any consultation comes in, we think about whether or not it touches on any of these 19 recommendations and whether or not we can use that as the framework for responding to any consultation that comes through. So like in terms of the single disciplinary body legislation that we saw recently, we were, we were able to tick off four or five of these recommendations with our response back to say, we've talked to members, we've talked to the profession more broadly, and we think that these are the elements of a single disciplinary body that we will progress the profession forwards. So it was, we, use this, we use this platform on a daily basis. Uh, if you have a look at any submissions that we're doing, you'll see that we refer back to the policy platform in most of them um, because this is effectively the blueprint for what the future of of financial planning should look like uh, in the views of the member, in the views of the board. And therefore, this is effectively our toolkit for saying this is how we we think this particular element should fit into to the future of the profession and and this is our members' views on, on how that should work. And what, what you'll see uh, if you've attended Roadshow or you have a look at the Roadshow presentations and material after uh, Roadshow's finished is that we've started to map out the, I guess, the the elements that we've started to work on. And you'll see that that all but 
three of them, we've really started to make some really good progress on through the fact that we're using this policy platform as a element of every submission we're making. So yes, it's a five-year plan and it will probably take five years to get there for, for all of them, but there's a lot of good progress that we're making at the moment and we'll probably see a lot more of them ticked off over the next couple of months. Excellent. Thank you, Ben. And thank you all for joining in and listening in today's uh, session and podcast. I think you'll agree that you know, it's great to start talking about and to be able to talk about proactive elements and future looking in terms of where we want the profession to go. And you know, as Marissa mentioned, it is a five-year plan, but it does uh, present a blueprint for the future of the profession. And uh, we hope that you better understand the platform now. And, uh, and, and, and as I mentioned before, please encourage you to uh, have a read of it yourself and also to engage on FPA community for any discussion. We, we welcome absolutely discussion and debate on any of the recommendations and even the pillars because we still need to build out many of this in detail and would welcome your input. So on that note, thank you to my guests, uh, Ben and Marissa. I appreciate it uh, and tuning in today and look forward to talking to you all next time.